All right, so as you guys are digging around for your Play-Doh, uh, let's bring up some slides here. I got a couple slides. I don't know if I warned our slide guys. Sorry about that. Uh, but I do have a couple of slides, so let's go to the next one. So my question is, what do you see here? What do you see? Everybody's kind of got something going on. Zach, what do you, Zach's just calling something out. What do you see? You see two faces, Clay? What do you, Clay is like, he's holding up a two, so my guess is you're seeing two faces, or does that mean you see two different things? And you see the cup, right? Who automatically sees a, a cup right away when they look at that? Yes, yeah. Who sees the face right, right off the bat? Who has no clue what I'm talking about? <laughs> All right, yeah, you can see two different things in this photo, right? You can see some faces. You can see a cup. If you look long enough, you'll be able to see them both kind of simultaneously. Let's look at the next one. Oh, what do you see here? You see an old lady? Who sees an old lady? Yeah, we've got some. Oh, yeah, who sees a young lady kind of turning away? All right, who sees both? Who still has no clue what I'm talking about? <laughs> all right, yeah. So for the longest time, all I could see is the, the young lady turning away. But if you look hard enough, for those of you who can't see the old lady, this is her nose, eye, mouth. Some people are like, oh, I see it now. So the young lady turning away, that's her nose, that's her eyelash. All right, let's go to the next one. What do you see here? You saw a face? Someone's like, I see both every time. I already know all this stuff. Yeah. Oh, Ivory, what do you see? You see a person walking by and maybe holding something right there? And that's like her face looking down? Does anybody see anything else? Yeah, Zach, what do you see? A big face, like an old man with like a beard right here or a goatee maybe? Yeah, all right. Let's go to the, the, I think there's one more. What do you see here? Okay, A, B. A woman? You see a woman? Is she looking at you? Yeah, all right. Henry, what do you see? A guy playing a saxophone. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's a dude with kind of a biggish nose. Here's the saxophone coming down. Some people are like, oh, wow, now I see that. And then here's the lady. There's one eye. There's her lips. Some people were like, wow, I didn't see that before either. So, so the reason why I show this, that's the last one. You can go to the next slide, which is all right. I guess we didn't need to go to the next slide, but we can stay here. So the reason why I show this is because we all kind of see things from a perspective, right? We like to think we are objective thinkers, and we want to strive to be objective thinkers. We like to think we are rooted in the truth and that we are grounded and yet, every single one of us brings some kind of baggage, some type of interpretation to the equation. So none of us are really as objective as we'd like to think we are. Now, part of our goal is to strive to become more objective, to look for a place where we can find truth. But we struggle. However, God is a perfect objective seer. God can see everything perfectly and he knows the fundamental truth. Whereas we struggle, we bring our cultural baggage, we bring our familial baggage, we bring our own perspectives. God sees it all very straightforward.
sometimes three-year-olds have a hard time, even if we're there with Amy, don't they? <laughs> she wants a Play-Doh. Harper, you can grab some Play-Doh. <laughs> She's also showing me your guns. She's like, all right. So, uh, so that's what we're going to get into today, is that God is a perfect judge who is objective in his truth. He, he has created truth. He knows truth. And we need to turn towards him for the truth. So we're starting a new, we're starting a, a put a pause on our Better Together series, uh, the study through Ephesians, and we're going to get into Advent. Now, there's a little bit of debate about Advent because some people, uh, you know, they're debating whether or not Christ was born on December 25th. And, you know, we really don't know when Christ was born. But the whole point of Advent is to prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior. And so whether or not he was born on December 25th, I don't think is the point. The point is we're going to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Just another place where we can't really know the objective truth, right? When was Christ born? We don't know. But we do know that we can celebrate our Savior. So in order to do that, we are going to study through uh, just different parts of Isaiah and how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Now, there are a few things to know about Isaiah. I want us to get to know Isaiah a little bit better. I think Isaiah is oftentimes just ignored. It's a long book. Uh, it, can be, it can seem kind of complicated. Uh, but Isaiah is it's often called the gospel of the Old Testament because it talks about the major themes are man's depravity, God's holiness, God's glory, God's mercy, God's love. God's acts of redemption. And Isaiah himself was often called the, or the Paul of the Old Testament. So theologians looking back call him the Paul of the Old Testament because he talks about themes of our depravity, God's glory, his acts of redemption. And so I want us to get to know Isaiah a little bit better. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And it's really structured around two major events. So if you, if you only take away a few things from Isaiah, I, won't, I would love it if we all started reading Isaiah together. But if you only take away two things from my sermon today, it'd be that Isaiah is structured around two historical events. So we're going to walk through a quick outline, and then we're going to jump into Isaiah 42. So here is the beginning of the outline. So the first point is the introduction. And the introduction is all about Israel's sin and the solution to their sin, which is God. God will be the solution to their sin. And then he gets into the first historical event, and it's going, he's going to develop this, uh, this prophetic uh, development through this idea of can we trust in Yahweh. So the first historical event is Assyria is coming down to wage war against Judah. So Israel has already invaded Northern Israel, so if you remember the timeline, Israel has been divided into two countries. There's northern Israel and there's Judah. Assyria is coming down. They've sacked northern Israel already, and they're coming to wage war against Judah. And the question that Isaiah has for the king Ahaz is, will he place his trust in God, or will he go towards foreign kings? And so the temptation for Ahaz is to look towards Egypt. Egypt is still a major power during those days. Egypt can still help uh, Israel. E Egypt 
has uh, an enemy in Assyria. They, they are both major players, and it would behoove Egypt to defeat Assyria so that they can become more dominant in the world. Now, Israel can look towards Egypt and say, they have a nice big military, way bigger than ours. And here comes this horrifying enemy coming down to destroy us. That big military looks really good. Let's trust in Egypt instead of in Yahweh. And so that is the historical event, and that's the question Isaiah will pose to Ahaz. And then he's going to do some prophetic development from this historical event. So he'll develop it in three lines, and that will be from chapter 13 all the way through 35. God is to be trusted because he is sovereign over all nations. God will triumph over all nations. And God will judge all nations. And then from there, we'll go to the next slide. From there, we get into the second historical event. And there's the question surrounding the second historical event is, is God to be glorified or will Hezekiah take the glory for himself? So this second historical event, again, Assyria is coming down. They're going to lay siege to Israel. In fact, they've already come down, and in order to get to, to Jerusalem, they've got to sack a bunch of other cities. And so they've already come down along the, the coast. I should have brought a map. Some people on Sunday nights make fun of me for my maps, but it's really helpful. So, so Assyria comes down from the north. They go through the coast, and then they work their way back up, taking over each stronghold that that Judah, the nation, has. And they work their way up to Jerusalem. Now, if they had just cut across and went straight to Jerusalem, then these other cities could have come up with their armies from behind, and they could have pinched Assyria and destroyed Syria. But Assyria was more intelligent than that. They come down, they take each city that they need to in line, and then they go ahead and they, they surround Jerusalem, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And the question at hand is, God is saying, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you the victory, and I love how he puts it. Uh, it it's uh, when, when he, the Holy Spirit finally gives them the victory, uh, the Assyrians wake up dead. <laughs> and what that means isn't that they all were dead and then they woke up, but that the majority of the Assyrians die. And the ones that are left wake up. And they look around at all of their forces that are dead, and they retreat. And so that's what happens. And then the question at hand for Hezekiah is, will you take the glory or will you give glory to God? So those are the two main questions in the book of Isaiah. Will you trust in God or will you place your trust in man? And will you give God glory or will you take the glory for yourself? So then he's going to develop the prophetic uh, side of things from this question of who will be glorified, God or will Hezekiah take the glory to himself? And uh, the, from 40 to 48, it will be the glory of God in his re restoration, the glory of God in his redemption, and the glory of God in the coming Messiah. And so we'll see how much prophetic development happens. Now, as you read Isaiah, sometimes uh, a prophet sees things kind of like a mountain range, and if you look at a mountain range, you see all of these mountains, right? But you, sometimes it's difficult to see where or how far they are. 
And so sometimes you'll see some peaks here and some peaks here, and it'll be difficult to see exactly where those peaks are, uh, how far away they are. And that's kind of the way a lot of people will read uh, prophecy. Now, we get the benefit of being in between peaks. So when they look at the prophetic development of the Messiah, sometimes it's talking about the, the uh, second coming. Sometimes it'll be about the original advent. We're in between those two peaks. So we get an advantage of looking at a peak there and looking at a peak there and saying, oh, well, I've made sense of this. But for the original audience, it was difficult for them to know which peak was the further away. So he's going to walk us through this, and we will pick up in the section where God uses the historical event of Assyria to develop a message about God's glory. In this section, he introduces his servant and what his servant will do. So let's open it up to Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So if you, Matthew 12, don't, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 12, Jesus is actually going around healing people, and, and it reads 12, 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And we'll see the first four verses in uh, chapter 42 being fulfilled. So Matthew links this verse, Isaiah 42, with the ministry of Jesus, that he was going around healing people, but not bragging about it. So let's dive in. We will see what this actually means. So the first word we have here is behold. This is a marker of identification, and it's kind of like saying, look, take notice of. I'm about to reveal something to you. This thing is really important, so take look. Take notice. So what does he want us to look at? He wants us to look at his servant, first of all. Now, this word servant isn't what we typically think of. It's not like someone who comes and cleans your house. The more accurate word that we would use is bond servant. So a bond servant is someone that sold themselves into slavery willingly. Now, it's different from a servant in that a servant can quit at any moment. A servant can say, look, I've had enough of you, you bossy person, I'm done. Someone who is a bond servant who has sold themselves into slavery willingly can't just quit. They willingly say, you are my master, I am your slave. You call the shots. This is different from just a regular slave in that a bond servant did it themselves. 
A slave who has been captured is forced into slavery. A bond servant says, I am willing to do this. So we see here, he says, look, my servant, this person who has willingly put themselves into my service, whom I uphold. This word uphold means to maintain. And right off the bat, we see that there is this interdependence in the Trinity. So the servant is Jesus, God the Son, and he will be maintained by God the Father. And actually, a couple of lines down, we'll see, I have put my spirit upon him. So we see all three of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, working together in God's redemptive action for man. God the Father maintaining the spirit, God the Son serving God the Father, and the Spirit anointing him. Now, this is something different from, the, the, from spiritual indwelling. So, in this day and age, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This means that the Spirit comes and indwells in you. And in Ephesians, it says you've been sealed by the Spirit, meaning that the Spirit has sealed you until the day of the purchase redemption, which means you cannot lose the Spirit. But this is different from an anointing. We see throughout the Old Testament, a spiritual anointing was a special anointing that the Holy Spirit would come upon a person to enable them to do a certain task that the Spirit had for him. You'll read this throughout all of the Old Testament. Anytime there's someone that God has a special action for, the Spirit will anoint them, give them special power to, and equip them to do what God has called them to do. And we see this actually fulfilled in Christ when he is baptized and the Spirit falls upon him like a dove. That is a spiritual anointing. That is the Holy Spirit working together with God the Father and God the Son to equip God the Son in his humanity to fulfill the assignment that God the Father has for him. I think that's pretty wild to think about God the Son, who is fully God, and yet still needing to be maintained by God the Father, and still needing the anointing from the God the Spirit. And what's the first thing God the Spirit does when he anoints him? He drives him into the wilderness to be tempted, so that he can be tempted in every way, just as you and I are. And in fact, I think the son's temptation was far worse than any temptation you've ever experienced. He was fasting for 40 days. Think about how weak he must have been by the end. I've never fasted for 40 days. I think the most I've ever done is maybe two. I don't ever want to do it again, I'll be honest with you. 40 days. And then I've never met anyone as manipulative as Satan, face-to-face, -face, throwing temptations at me. Anytime you don't think Christ can identify with you, anytime you don't think Christ has ever been through what you've been through, think about his temptation. He understands every bit of your temptation. And yet is without sin.
So we see the, the Trinity, each person in the Godhead, working together in God's redemptive plan towards us. That they are all working to redeem us. So behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Not only are they working together, and we see an interdependence in the Trinity, but we also see a delight, a relationship within the Trinity. That each one of them delight in the other. It's kind of weird to think about God delighting, each person of the Godhead delighting in the other person of the Godhead, right? And yet here it is, they are delighting in each other. And when I think about our series, Better Together, as I think about Ephesians, and I think about how we need to be looking at Christ for community, looking at, I should say, the Godhead, the Trinity for community, we can look at how we should be interdependent and how we should also be taking joy. We should be delighting in one another. Too often in the church, we do not delight in one another. We might tolerate, we might bear, we might put up with someone, but I want to challenge you, that person that kind of drives you nuts, find something about them that you can delight in. Because they too are original workpiece of God. They too bear the image of God. And you can delight in them as well. But this is specifically talking about the Godhead, the Trinity that God the Father is delighting in God the Son. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So not only is God going to delight in him, but he has an assignment, he has a purpose. So he's volunteered for this position, he's maintained by the Father, he's been anointed by the Spirit, And he's there to bring forth justice to the nations, not just to Israel. This is a, a prophet from Judah writing to the people of Judah. And yet, it's not just for Israel, it is for all nations. I think we have a tendency to become ethnocentric. We think about justice for our local neighborhood, for our local community. We think about justice for our country. And oftentimes we forget that God isn't just a God of this locality, but he is a God of the entire world. And he cares about justice for the entire world. So think about Russia and Ukraine right now. God doesn't just want to see Russia, or God doesn't just want to see justice occur in Ukraine. He wants justice in Russia as well. He is a God of the entire world, not just one specific country. So he's here to bring justice. Justice means to decide a legal dispute. Justice means to bring about righteousness. To fairly decide a legal dispute according to a legal standard. The word is mishpat. That's the Hebrew word for it. So let's think about that for a second. In order to bring about, a, a fairly decide a legal dispute, number one, there needs to be some kind of law. There needs to be some kind of moral standard. And number two, there needs to be some type of objective vision. 
There needs to be somebody that can clearly identify and clearly see what is wrong and how that wrong can be righted. And you and I, in our finite minds, cannot fully do that. Only God can fully bring about justice. Even when we see a clear black and white issue, for example, there were two mass shootings this last week. And every single one of us would say, no matter who, no matter who it was that was the victim, it was sad. There was injustice that happened in those two mass shootings. Now, they were pretty black and white. It's pretty clear that the, that the shooter was in the wrong. But think about it. Think about the limitations of our government. Let's say our government threw the book at the shooter. The one was in Colorado. There's no death penalty in Colorado, but let's say there was. So the, the first shooter who, who shot five people, killed five people, got the death penalty. Now, can that exact true justice? Has that actually righted that wrong? No, we are limited in how well we can actually execute justice. Even if taking that life would have done justice for one, what about the next five? There is no true justice. We are, because God cares about justice, we are to care about justice, but we can't fully exact true justice in this world. Our only hope for true justice is God. And this servant will bring forth true justice, not just to Israel, but to all people. It is our only hope for true justice. And not only will he bring true justice, but he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. Now this is the exact part that, I, that Matthew is quoting to say that Jesus fulfilled it. And if you'll take that in context, remember, he was telling them to not go brag about how Jesus healed them. And so the point of this, of, of verse 2, is simply that he was humble. He came about by humble means. So almost all of uh, chapter 42 is actually going to be in contrast. Who this servant is, is going to be in contrast with worldly leaders. And what do we know about worldly leaders? Worldly leaders love to brag about who they are, don't they? I mean, look at Herod the Great. What is his name? The Great. Worldly leaders care about their legacy, and that's what they care most about. They have a legacy to build, and they don't care who they trample on to build that legacy. So Herod the Great wants the nickname Herod the Great. So what is he going to do? He's going to do anything he can to get that nickname, The Great. So he's going to shout it from the rooftops how great he is. But this servant comes from humility. And so God could have chosen anyone to enter into this world. He could have chosen the greatest of kings. He could have chosen Caesar's palace. And he could have had all kinds of fanfare when he was born into this world. But instead, he chose a humble Jewish couple in a humble city. He didn't even pick the great Jewish city of Jerusalem. Instead, he chose a humble couple in a humble town, in a humble dwelling place. And then, as he's 
doing all of these signs to authenticate his claim that he is God in the flesh. He could have been shouting it from the rooftops. He could have showed up at Herod's palace, broken down the door and said, hey, bow down because I'm here. And yet he chooses not to. He chooses humility. So he doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it hear it in the street. And then it continues. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So a bruised reed he will not break. Have you been for a walk in the forest lately? You see all that dried grass? How easy is it when you step off the path to break that grass? Pretty easy, isn't it? The same is true for a bruised reed. A bruised reed is easy to break. So this shows his gentleness. That when God comes in the flesh, he will be gentle. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Jen really enjoys candles. I don't know if anyone else does. My kids love to blow candles out. But how far down do you let a candle burn until you throw it away? Do you let it burn all the way? Are you quick to throw them out? This is what he's getting at, a faintly burning wick. This is a wick that's almost gone. There's not much left of it. And our tendency is to throw it out and grab a new one. And his tendency is to keep it going. So both of these speak about humans. And this is actually why I wanted to start with this piece. Because how many of us feel like a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick? Broken and bruised worn out and used, hurt, feeling like there's nothing left, feeling like I can't go on, feeling like I have nothing left to give, feeling like no one would want anything I have to give anyway, just broken and bruised, worn out and used. And what he's saying here is that Christ, when he comes, will be gentle and will see that you have value left in you. No matter how broken and bruised you feel, no matter how worn out and used you feel, Christ sees value in you. He sees you as his own original piece of art. And he will be gentle with you. And he will see you as valuable. Now once again, this contrasts with the kings. Take Herod the Great, who had to build his great empire. It was said during those times that it was better to be Herod's pig than his wife. Because Herod didn't mind breaking the bruised reed, and he didn't mind snuffing out the wick. He had his empire to build, and he didn't care who he trampled on for it. And when we look around, we can still see that worldly value playing out today. People who have their own little empires to build, and they don't care who they hurt in order to build the empire. But as Christ ones, as Christ followers, we are called to care for the broken reed, 
or the bruised reed. We are called to care for the faintly burning wick. We are called to care for those who are broken and bruised, worn out and used, to see the value in them that Christ sees as well. And he will faithfully bring forth justice. So this is one of the ways that he's going to care for them, is that he is going to bring forth this justice that we can only hope for. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Whereas the broken reed and the, the faintly burning wick will grow faint and they will be discouraged. No matter what happens in Christ's life, he will not be discouraged. He will not be broken. He will not be bruised. He will not be worn out and used. He will continue to go forward till he has established justice on the earth. So 2 Peter 3.9 says that Christ was patient, that God is patient, not desiring that anyone should perish, but that all would come to redemption. And that's what he's getting at here, is that he will not grow faint, he will not be discouraged, till he has established justice on the earth, that he will be patient. And the coastlands, coastlands wait for his law. Some of your translations will say, and the islands wait for his law. And the whole point is that his justice, his law, will cover all of the earth one day. That at some point, Christ will rule the entire world. Even the furthest islands, Christ will still rule. That's the part that's been fulfilled, as Matthew says. But then we go on. Thus says, says the Lord. Now what's interesting here is we've got, thus says God the Lord. God is El, the Lord is uh, Yahweh. And so we see El was like the, the big God, right? Like the God that is creator of all. The God that is God over all. Yahweh is the same God, and yet... He also had a personal relationship with Israel. And so we see this great big God who is also personal. Too often we kind of fall on one or the other side of the spectrum. We think of God as this great big God who created and then left. And we become deists. And we don't think that he's personally involved in our lives. Or we can go the other way and we can think, God is very personally involved with me and I can manipulate him. Because we got, we're tight. We're like this. I'm the tall one. But we see here that God is a great big God who is creator of all, and yet he personally cares for you. He has a relationship with you. And then he's going to go on to explain it. Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk on it. Only God can do this. There is no one else that can do this, that can create out of nothing. He creates and he stretches it out. There is no one else that can breathe life into people, who can create people and breathe life, and not just life, but he goes one step further and breathes spirit into them. So then, he, so he paints the picture of how great and big God is, and then he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. The you here is the servant. He has called forth the servant in righteousness. The term for righteousness is sadiq, and it means the correct moral path. So he has called Christ in the correct moral path. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, a person can't actually be the covenant. A better way to translate this, I think, is I will give you as a mediator of a covenant for the people. And this is a direct reference 
to the new covenant that Christ will institute, that he is the mediator of the new covenant, that the new covenant, after Christ fulfills the old covenant, the new covenant comes into place and isn't just a covenant for, for Israel, but it is a covenant for all people. That all people can enjoy God's grace. That all people can enjoy this covenant that He will be our God and we will be His people. To open, and then we see the word to here gives us the purpose, right? What's the purpose of the new covenant? To open the eyes that are blind. We last week we read in Ephesians 4 how the unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. And they have hearts that are hardened and callous. And in a sense, what Paul is saying is that they, they don't know and they don't even know that they don't know. It's so dark. Kids, it's like walking around in your room with the lights off and Legos spread out everywhere. And you have no clue when your foot is going to hit the pokiest Lego of them all. You're walking around in the dark and you don't even know that there's Legos spread everywhere. So what is God, what is the new covenant going to do? It's going to open our eyes so that we can actually see. It's going to open our eyes so that we can know God and be known by God. And that's not the only purpose, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And essentially what this is saying is that he's going to free us from the slavery of sin. That until you come to know Christ, until you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are blind, you are sitting in moral darkness. You don't even know what's truly right and what's truly wrong. And beyond that, you have become a slave to sin. And you may not feel like you're a slave to sin, but sin really owns you. Have you ever wondered why you keep doing that thing that you hate to do? Why you keep going back to it and you swore last time that you did it, you swore you would never do it again. There's no way I'm ever going to do that thing again. I hate myself when I do it. It just drives me absolutely nuts. And yet, you do it again and again and again. It is because you are a slave to sin. But Christ came, the servant came, to bring forth justice, to open your eyes so that you could see what's real and to free you from slavery to sin. So Isaiah writes of a future Messiah. He's looking forward to the future. But we get the benefit of looking back. We can look back and we can behold the servant who did not enter with pomp, but with humility, who cares for the broken and the bruised, the worn out and used, who brings forth justice, who opens our eyes and frees us from sin. So as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the perfect unbiased judge who sees everything clearly, let us behold him. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that over 900 years ago, you inspired a guy named Isaiah to write a book using two historical events to look forward not just to the redemption of Israel, but to redemption of mankind.
And we pray as we look back to your first advent that we would prepare our hearts to celebrate it. That we would behold a God who loves, who is gentle, who is personally involved in our lives. And that we in turn would give you the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.